Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. welcoming you and uh, thank you for making the effort to come. I know that getting out there in minus 40 wind chills or whatever it is right now is uh, probably not the most exciting thing to look forward to, but to gather together as God's people and to sing together, to encourage one another, to remind ourselves of the King who has come and who is coming is a, is a privilege and a joy. And so just want to Thank you for, for coming. And I uh, also want to remind you, we have us potentially, I think, up to the end of February, but we're doing the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And uh, there are some envelopes on the back table designated for that. And that is an offering that uh, entirely goes to foreign missions. Uh, the International Mission Board is not just in North America, but across the globe and supporting missionaries who are taking the gospel to the nations. And so if you'd like to contribute to that, uh, that will be going on for... Uh, several more weeks here and hoping to, to uh, together as Cornerstone, try to give uh, at least $3,000 to uh, this, this missions program. And uh, it's just a unique way that we can give. Um, we may not be able to go to some of these places personally as we'd like, but we can support those who are already on the ground there. So I'll just remind you of that. I will invite you to turn with me to Philippians 2 again this morning. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to conclude our, our study uh, in this passage and also our, our Advent study looking at uh, beholding Christ. And we've seen from the eternal Son to Christ and working in the Old Testament to the incarnation of Jesus in the manger becoming man. And, uh, and now we want to conclude Paul's words here regarding um, Christ, that we would behold him as the exalted Lord. So I will invite you to stand with me. We'll read Philippians 2, starting at verse 9. Well, I'll just read the entire piece again so we get it all together. Um, verse 4, we'll start at verse 4 of Philippians 2. And uh, I know that we generally, I've been doing the responsive reading, we'll do in a moment after we read. And I was looking at different translations and realized there's a lot of different ways to say one sentence, so I just went with the English Standard uh, translation there. So if the words seem a little bit different after, don't, don't worry. I will try to keep it consistent moving forward. So anyways, here we go. Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the grass withers and the flowers falls. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that though we watch seasons change, we watch years fade away and new years begin, Lord, that you remain the same. And Lord, that from your fullness, your mercies are new each morning. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to abide in you, Lord, as the true vine, that we would bear fruit and that we would, uh, we would know the joy of the Lord, the fellowship of your spirit, God would be our strength. And we ask as we look at your word, as we seek to know Christ more clearly, as we uh, seek to understand the work that he's done and the great implications of that, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate our minds, God, that you would help us to see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears this morning, that we would be uh, nourished by your word. And we thank you for uh, your promise to never leave nor forsake us. And Lord, we ask now that you work to the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So historically, this little section in uh, Philippians, even as Paul wrote it, was a sort of hymn that very likely may have been even sung in the early church. Uh, this marvelous description of the work of Christ and the response of the Father and Paul showing the early church how this example, this great work that Christ has done, really becomes the foundation for how we are to love and serve one another as Christians, as family members, even as we look at non-Christians, our neighbors perhaps, that this becomes a foundation for how we are to love one another. And um, as I've said, we've spent uh, several weeks now hopefully growing in our understanding of who Jesus is, of what he has done um, in history past, in his coming, in his dying and rising again. But I suppose if you're like me, um, you know, you've heard a lot about probably the eternal nature of Jesus or you're familiar with it. You've heard about his coming and being born in a manger You've probably heard a fair bit about Jesus' time on the earth, his earthly ministry, his miracles, his teaching that he, he taught while he was on the earth. You've heard about his death on the cross where he becomes a curse for us. He takes our sin upon himself, pays for our debt. He satisfies the justice of God and and achieves for us our salvation. And you've heard about how he was buried and rose again on the third day, which we especially celebrate at Easter time. And you've probably heard about his ascension, how he remained on the earth for about 40 days and then was taken up into heaven uh, while the disciples were there with him and told them that he would return in the same way that he had left them. But after that... Um, as Jesus ascends into the clouds, we may find ourselves at times sort of like the disciples there staring up into the clouds, wondering 
What's next? What, what happens now that Christ has gone? And maybe we haven't heard a lot about the exaltation of Christ. What happened when Jesus ascended into heaven, when he returned into the presence of his Father? What took place? Um, and and, and what, did the Father, what was the Father's response to his Son? No doubt we know one of the things that happened shortly after was Pentecost. And do any of the kids know what happened at Pentecost? That, uh, that festival where the Jews had gathered, but this time something special happened. Any of the kids know? Pentecost, what, what did the Lord do? He sent someone from heaven. Yeah, Hannah? His son he did send, and then after his son went back into heaven, who came next? His Holy Spirit, right? His Holy Spirit was poured out upon his church at Pentecost, which was a, um, a byproduct of Jesus returning into heaven and being exalted. He himself sent his spirit upon the church, so we may know that. Um, but this morning, I want us to consider the response of the Father to his Son and the exaltation of Jesus Christ something that we may not have, have thought a lot about. And I know even for myself, um, studying this further this week has been a tremendous blessing in, in growing in, in uh, the great, uh, glorious truths that have happened because of what Christ has done. So we're going to look at two primary responses from the Father uh, towards His Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul uh, tells us them in verse 9, we see the work of Christ that we've looked at, his humility, his coming as a servant, his joining his divinity to his humanity in the person of Jesus Christ and being found as a man. Even his death, Paul there describes, is the, the, the epitome of his obedience to the Father, is that the, at the climax of the obedience of Christ is his dying on the cross. And then we see in verse 9 this word, therefore. Therefore, because of what Christ has just done, therefore the Father is going to respond to the Son. And first of all, we see that the Father, we're told here in verse 9, has highly exalted Him. He exalted the Son. God the Father, because of the work of Christ, His obedience, His incarnation, His, His perfect life, His perfect sacrifice, the Father therefore exalts the Son and is pleased to make much of Christ before all of creation. And the, the word is, could be even translated super exalted. He highly exalted Him, some translations might say that God exalted Christ to the greatest degree possible. And I know in our English language, you know, we use a word like super or highly or fantastic. We'll use it to describe anything from our coffee to our, to our car to our favorite burger at A&W. And so sometimes these words just don't carry the weight that I wish they could um, because we use them so often. But Christ is exalted to the greatest degree. He is super exalted. He is highly exalted. He is extremely exalted, is what Paul is saying. This is the response of the Father towards the Son. 
Now, there, there might be a potential problem uh, in our thinking with this because you might ask the question, well, what has changed, really? I mean, if Jesus was God eternal before he became a man, he would have celebrated with the Father the fullness of, of glory with God. He would have been one who is worthy of worship, of praise and honor. Uh, he would have already been the, the great object of the worship of all creation as God the Son. And so you might ask, what is different now that Christ has come to the earth and gone back to heaven? Uh, what's different now about this exaltation than he would have had prior? And uh, of course, we must acknowledge that we're not saying Jesus became more divine, right? You can't be more God or less God. Either you are God, which means you are the fullness of who God is. All of his attributes must be present fully, or you're not God. So it's not a matter of Jesus becoming more God. Um, and even in his incarnation, we must be careful to, to remind ourselves that he did not become less God when he became a man. He is always totally divine, totally God. And in his incarnation, he has joined humanity to his divinity. But both are present. And I think this is the key to what has happened for Christ here. The highly exalted him. Um, yes, he is still divine. He is still God, as he has always been. But something has changed. He has added to himself humanity. This is new. This is something that has never been true of any person of God before. God the Father did not add humanity to himself. God the Spirit did not add humanity to himself. Only Christ the Son came and joined to himself humanity. Two natures in one person. And so in a real way, the same person that was born in the manger in Bethlehem, the same person that spent his early years as a refugee, the same person who grew up in the poorest of poor in Nazareth among a conquered people, they were conquered by the Romans, and that's how Jesus grew up as someone who was under the oppression of the Roman rule. The same person who, as a man, had nowhere to lay his head in his earthly ministry. The same person who was mocked and beaten and treated worse than even an animal and was crucified at Calvary. That same person, Jesus Christ, is now exalted in heaven at the highest place of honor, the highest place of worship, and God the Father is the one who was pleased to exalt him. And so this exaltation of Christ is now the divine and the human joined, and it is Christ, the God-man, who is now in heaven and is exalted. And so I think this is what is unique about this exaltation that the Father has placed upon the Son. And you could just imagine as Jesus, I mean, when he left heaven, we don't know ex exactly how that would have all looked, but no doubt the angels probably had somewhat of an idea that was happening. The sun is going down to earth, and they would have marveled at this great mystery, this great humiliation of God himself, the one whom they worship is man. 
And you could imagine the scene and the party in heaven when Christ the man ascends back up into heaven and the angels of God realize what has happened and God the Father exalts His Son who has perfectly obeyed Him and has offered Himself as our great sacrifice. We could only uh, get glimpses of this celebration. I was thinking even of the, we know the parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And when the father sees his son far off, we're told, he runs to his son and he embraces him and he kisses him and he gives him the robe uh, and he places the family ring on his finger and he kills the, the fatted calf and throws a great party that his son has come home. How much more did God the Father rejoice when he sees his son coming back into the, into the glory of God in heaven, Jesus, who became the prodigal son, that we might be the beloved son of God. Jesus became the rejected, sinful, rebellious son on the cross because of our sin. And how much more do you believe God the Father would have loved to exalt his son at his coming back into glory? John MacArthur said this, he said, So he has entered into an exaltation and a glory that is the same glory he had before the world began, and yet with new rights and privileges because he is now the God-man who accomplished the work of his incarnation. And God did all of this. God is the source of it all. God gave to Jesus this right, this privilege, and this exaltation. And it is a glorious picture of the love that God the Father has for His Son. Um, you've probably witnessed this with children. If, if a child gets a privilege or maybe a reward for doing something, maybe they you know, finish their schoolwork or their chores and they do it with a joyful attitude and, and you praise them for that and you, you, you thank them for that, Generally, the response from the other children is, is jealousy, and they will, some, for some reason, turn on that sibling who has, who has done good, and they will, you know, start trying to pick a fight. I don't, it's a strange thing to witness, but we must not ever think that the father had any sort of, of jealousy, of resentment towards his son. God was pleased to turn the, even the gaze of the angels to his son and to exalt him and delight in it um, as Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now, like I said, there's not a lot of, of uh, information that we get exactly how this all would have looked in heaven. Um, we do get glimpses, and I just want to look at one of those glimpses before moving on to the second response of the Father. If you turn with me for a moment to Revelation 5. In many ways, the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ carrying out His exaltation and His rule that the Father has put upon Him, placed upon Him. Revelation is the unfolding of this new rule and reign of Christ. And I, I know that because it's written in a, uh, the apocalyptic style, it's sometimes frightening and confusing for us. There are a lot of pictures and symbols and images that uh, we don't naturally get. But 
I want to read just a portion here from Revelation 5 as we get a glimpse of this scene in heaven when Christ comes before the Father and the response of the Father and also of the angels themselves. And so we start in in verse 1. We find, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And in many ways, this scroll represents the, the, the sovereign work of God and his activity upon the earth. And if it is not opened, then, then it is hidden. And, and so we see that there is no one found in verse 3 to open the scroll in heaven or on earth or under the earth, um, was able to open it and look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And we get this glimpse into the very throne room of heaven where Christ, presented as the Lamb who was slain, opens this seal that He alone is worthy to open. And as a result of His obedience and His sacrifice, the Father is pleased to exalt Him and the angels. And I mean, you could just imagine thousands and thousands of angels singing together in, in praise to Christ. Uh, I, I, I've once been at a conference where there was about 4,000 people gathered, and uh, to be in that room with them singing was, was worth the conference in itself. And, uh, and, and just to hear the people of God raise up praise to Christ, but you could imagine how much more 
this sound would have shook the very foundations of the earth, the exaltation of the Son. And so we see this response of the Father that he delighted to exalt his Son, first at the resurrection, then his ascension into heaven, and then as he enters into the glory of, of God, in heaven itself, Christ is exalted. Now, this is a pattern in the scriptures that we need to understand, and I think would actually tremendously help us navigate through our Christian life. That there is a pattern of humility, of suffering, and then exaltation. And this is right throughout the entire Bible. You could think of a man like Job, who suffered greatly and lost much, but after his faithfulness was again exalted and restored back by God. You could think of Joseph who was sold into slavery and for a season was a slave and was mistreated and lied about and spent time in prison unjustly. But after he had proven faithful to God, he was delivered and God exalted him to be the only under Pharaoh. Uh, he was the second rank in all of Egypt. And this principle of humiliation and exaltation. You think of the wandering of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years until they were ready to be obedient to God, to trust him and enter into the promised land. King David spent many years in exile, running from Saul for his life, even though he had already been crowned king. He lived as a, as a criminal, hiding in caves and rocks. And yet after he was proven faithful to God, he was crowned king and was exalted. You think of Daniel in Babylon. He was betrayed and persecuted. He was cast into the den of lions to be, to be meat for them to eat. But because of his faith in God, he was preserved out of the lion's den, and he too was exalted to a place of great influence in Babylon. All of these point to Christ, who himself would humble himself, become a slave, a servant to God, and go into the depths of death and sin itself, and because of his faithfulness, be exalted by God. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus, speaking of himself in John 12, said, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This principle of humiliation, of service, of suffering, and then exaltation. This is true for us as well. Um, there was a, I don't know a lot about it, but even in Grand Prairie, there was a, a group, um, they were defining themselves as Dominion City. And their theology basically was that we should now be experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom, that we should be claiming every element of society, and that we have the authority um, to, to basically speak anything into existence. This, this idea that we have the right to the fullness of all that Christ has, has purchased for us. But that's not true. Not yet. 
a big fancy word, is a, a over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is just your view of end times, how that's all going to unfold. You all, we all have one, even if we may not realize it. And to over-realize that is to, to try to make what is promised in the future a reality now. And it's dangerous because it can leave you very confused and, and ultimately frustrated with God. But if you understand that we are called, like Christ now, to suffer, to humiliation, to struggle, and then exaltation, it helps us to persevere through the times of struggle. Paul went so far in Romans 8, 16 to say that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to what he says. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is those who go through the season of struggle and suffering and trial and temptation and remain steadfast that will also be exalted and glorified with Christ. And this changes the way you begin to look at struggle and suffering. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he said, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Which means your struggle, your suffering, your trials are not in vain. They're not meaningless. They're actually preparing something for you, a, a weight of glory, Paul says. And if we start to see our struggles in that light, it will give us great hope and perseverance. We know that Christ himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. This principle of suffering and then exaltation, of humility and then exaltation. Christ himself walked in it. And we too are called to walk in it. So the first response of the Father is that he exalts the Son. And the second response, we'll uh, look at a little bit uh, faster, is that God, in, we see in Philippians 2, let me get back here. First of all, he highly exalts him, and then secondly, we're told, he bestows on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The second response of the Father is that he gives to Jesus a new name, a name that is above all names. And as I said, studying this, I, I uh, have been tremendously blessed in, in not really seeing this uh, in the same light before. But you think about God changing people's names, giving them a new name. He has done this in the past, hasn't he? We think of Abram. And God, when he establishes his covenant with Abram, he tells him uh, there in Genesis 15, if you want to just flip back for a quick moment, uh, you can see this, and I know you're familiar with it, so we won't linger here too long. But <clears throat> when God establishes his covenant with, with Abram and gives him the great promise of his son through whom he will bless the nations, God also changes his name. And um, 
me see now I have the Genesis 17, 5. God has established this covenant, gave him the promises, given him the sign of circumcision. And, um, oh, I'm trying to find, okay, here we go, verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Abram, meaning exalted father, Abraham, meaning exalted father of great multitudes. And later in verse 15, he does the same for his wife, who was Sarai. He changes her name to Sarah, the mother of, of great multitudes. And we know later that God would change Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. In Genesis 32, 28, Jacob meaning uh, the deceiver, and Israel, meaning he strives with God, that mysterious story when Jacob wrestles with this man all night, and, and, and at the end, the, the man touches his hip and puts it out of socket, and, and, and Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me, and he gives him a new name, and he says, you are no longer Jacob, but you are now Israel, because you have strived with God. We know Jesus did this with Simon, he gave him the name Peter, which means rock in John 1.42. We know that Saul, after his conversion, became known as Paul. In Acts 13.9, we see that. So a name is significant, especially in the Hebrew culture. A name uh, carried with it meaning, and, and it, it signified purpose and identity. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Solomon writes again in Ecclesiastes 7.1, A good name is better than precious ointment. And even as we reference God, we know Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So the question is, what is the name that the Father gives to the Son? What is this new name that He bestows upon Christ after exalting Him? And the name is Lord. It's Lord. He is not simply Jesus the man, but He is Jesus Christ the Lord, the exalted one. And you see what it says at the end there. The confession in verse 11 of Philippians 2, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's not to say that it's wrong to refer to him as Jesus. Uh, we see the name Jesus used throughout the, the New Testament. Um, even in Revelation 22, 21, Jesus identifies himself with his name Jesus. But it is this attaching to Christ the name of Lord. And over 700 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referenced as Lord. In the preaching of the apostles, he is Christ the Lord, and it is a call for the nations to submit to him as Lord. And Lord, uh, in, you recognize, we still use the word Adonai from the Hebrew, which means Lord. And here uh, in the Greek, the word kurios and it is the same word that the Caesars tried to attribute to themselves. Many Christians died because they refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They would say, Jesus is Lord. And even today, many are losing their lives because they are professing Christ as Lord, 
not only as Savior, not only as Redeemer, not only as Messiah, but Lord, Sovereign God, the One who rules over all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is Christ, and this is the name that the Father bestowed upon Him in response to His obedience. Now, you may have heard the idea that we must make Jesus Savior and Lord, that at some point, you know, we're saved, and then later on down the road that we also make him Lord of our life. But that is foreign in the New Testament. When you receive Christ, you receive him as Savior and Lord, because this is whom the Father has declared him to be. And it's not that the Father, we're told, is going to do this, but that he has already done it. It says that he has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It has already been given to Christ this name as Lord of all. And it is the song the angels sing. It is the song that the redeemed through the ages sing. It is the song we will sing when we gather together with the saints who have gone before. And we find that Because of this response of the Father, all worship will be given to Christ. All will bow before him. Angels, men, women, children, we will all confess Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. So what is our response to this? I think sometimes we are tempted to look around and we prayed for the condition of our world, and you may ask, well, if Jesus is truly Lord, if he is truly the ruler over all, why do we see such a mess? Why do we see so much evil prevailing? And the writers of the New Testament were not unaware of this. Um, Even the author of, of the book of Hebrews, and we'll, we'll wind down here, Even the author of the book of Hebrews ascribing to Christ this lordship in Hebrews 2 verse 8 says, 2 verse 7 and 8, You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But listen to what he says. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So they were aware that as they look around, they do not yet see the fullness of Christ's reign present. And there are many illustrations we could use, but one that I think has is, is been helpful is even as you think about the close of the, the, some of the great wars of history, the Second World War, from the time that, that the declaration was made that the war had been won, that the, the, uh, the forces of the enemy had been defeated, there was still an amount of time after that date, before the troops were officially sent home, before the war and all of its effects had actually come to an end. There was a bit of a lag at the end 
between the declaration that the war was won and the actual effects of that declaration being felt. And it is similar for us that this victory of Christ, this lordship of Christ, it is like leaven working its way through a lump of dough. And in time, its full effect will take place and we will see it. It is like a mustard seed, Jesus said, that is planted in the ground and over time it grows into a great tree that even the birds of the air find shelter in. It is like a small stream coming from Calvary, but as it flows, it widens and it deepens. And as the ages continue on, this becomes a great river and soon it will cover all the earth. And so let us persevere, let us press on and not lose heart. Christ is indeed Lord, and it is only a matter of time until the full effects of this reign are seen, until we are glorified and the kingdom is brought in all its fullness, and we are called to take the message of the kingdom to all the nations that they would know Christ is Lord. And if you're here this morning and you are like the Philippian jailer who looks at Paul after witnessing a great miracle and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response to him is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess Christ as Lord and you will be saved. Let us pray and we will have a closing song. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your spirit that you have sent. Lord, that you did not leave us as orphans. You did not leave us to wander in the wilderness aimlessly without comfort or hope, but you sent your comforter as a guarantee of what Christ has done. Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes to the person of Jesus. And Lord, that, that we would grow in that in this new year, that we would make it our, our resolution to seek the Lord in the morning, to seek him at night, to, to, to seek the Lord with our families, God, around the table, that we would open your, your word and that we would seek Christ in his fullness, that we would be a people found ready at his return. And God, we do pray for the nations. We do pray for the lostness around us. God, you have given us the light of the gospel. Help us to be courageous, to be bold, to be willing to lay down our life that the world may know Jesus Christ is Lord. And I thank you for this dear congregation. God, would you help us to press on? Would you keep us from distraction? Lord, we ask all of this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.